The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. All right, if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 1 before I pray and get started, by way of introduction, I want you to know that today I'm going to give you the tools for a successful life. Yeah. I'm going to give you the keys to success. I mean, that's what you're here for, right? Yeah. Everybody wants to have a successful life, to have the life that you've always dreamed for. I mean, isn't that what we ask God for every day? However, there's a catch. Yeah, you were waiting for that, right? There's one thing you need to know about these tools for success as we begin. And here it is. When you finally get the life you've always wanted, it's no longer your life. When you finally gain the life you've always wanted, it's no longer your life. It is Christ in you. As Paul so aptly put in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet... It's not I, but Christ that lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the focus of what Paul is going to emphasize is, yes, get the life that is the most amazing life possible, but when you really get it, it's not your life. The most outrageously prosperous life there is, is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Now, as we saw last week, and as we're going to continue today, Paul is going to be moving them into this fellowship emphasis. So let's look to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, once again, I just ask that you would bathe us with your spirit, that you would open our hearts to be receptive to the true meaning of success for the child of God. Because in the truest sense, You loved us so much that you not only saved us for eternity, but you gave us the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth that we might be able to have the amazing life that you planned for us. And so I pray that you would adjust our thought patterns, adjust the desires of our heart, and bring them captive into your perfect will and way, that we might understand the true meaning of the successful life you have for us. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As I said, Paul brings all of his readers into one fellowship. He's not exclusive. He he prays for them all, verse 4. He's confident of them all in verses 6 and 7. He speaks well of them all, being certain that they are all recipients of God's grace in verse 7. Paul includes all Christians because he knew that all had been brought by God, into a great and glorious fellowship. Now, this was a new thing in Paul's day. At the time, the world was filled with all kinds of barriers. Uh, Barriers of race and wealth, of education and culture. There was the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. There were barriers between Romans and Greeks, each believing that their culture was superior. There were barriers between slaves and free people. There was no such thing as brotherly love. 
Fellowship was first found and exclusively among Christians. Christians were one. They confessed one Lord. They had one salvation. And although all the barriers of culture were within the church, they simply overlooked them. They met not as antagonists, but as those who had been called out of darkness by Jesus Christ and made alive in him. They loved one another, and the world marveled at it. Now, this should be true of us today. But how is this achieved? Well, first we see by prayer. Looking more closely at this, we can see how we are to attain real Christian fellowship. Paul writes, if you're in Philippians chapter 1, he writes in verse 4, Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayers with joy. Christians should pray for each other. There isn't a day go by that I don't pray for all of you collectively and some of you specifically as you encounter major needs. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayers and supplication to, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. And then Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. You know, when we ask you to fill out prayer requests and put them in the offering plate so we can pray for them on Wednesday night, these are not idle words. These are diligently and deeply prayed for by the folks that are here. And all of us should cultivate and develop that unity in prayer for all, each person. So do you pray for other Christians? This will certainly change your relationship with one another. It will draw you nearer and deeper into relationships with a common ministry and service. And this is characteristic is made very clearly in Acts chapter 2 and verse, verse 42 when it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. When it says they devoted themselves, it means it was the foundation of what they did. It was the key motivation what they did collectively as a local church. They prioritized the teaching of the Word of God because they wanted to understand the mind of Christ, not forsaking fellowship or breaking bread together, and then praying together. This was the basic formula for a successful church. And further note that this came on the heels of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Just earlier in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And from that point on, every person who ever accepted Christ was immediately indwelled with the Holy Spirit. So what's being described in verse 42 is literally Holy Spirit living. And this ought to be the main focus in each of our lives collectively. I mean, just imagine the problems that we would avoid if we prayed together as a church. Think of the problems you would handle more easily and with much more clarity if you prayed together as a family and for each other. And then notice that Paul has confidence in the Philippians. Why does Paul have confidence in them? Well, verse 7 says, It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
Notice, because of the work of God in them. Why was it right for Paul to feel this way? Because of verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul confidently held them close in his heart because the same work that was done in his heart was done in their heart. Also, because they were partakers of the same grace. Look at verse 7 again. For you are all partakers of grace with me. So God has given the same grace to all Christians that he gave to the Apostle Paul. So literally, this passage is teaching in the Greek, all of you are participants with me in this grace. So whether it was Apostle Paul, a slave, a merchant, a master, a Roman, a Greek, a Jew, a Gentile, all of them were partakers in the very same grace. There was no distinction in Christ. So a king and a peasant were totally equal at the foot of the cross. No truth will be more quickly no truth will more quickly overcome division among Christians than the truth that we are equally sinners and equally saints. Equal recipients of grace. Now, two important keys that should be part of this Christian fellowship is Paul says in verse 7, I hold you in my heart. And in verse 8, he says, I yearn for you with all the affections of Christ Jesus. What a massive heart Paul has on display here. Because he has allowed the mind of Christ to take over him. His heart is is now the heart of Christ. He's thinking and loving with the love of Christ. Paul has allowed the Lord Jesus to fill him, to guide him, direct him, and his actions and his motivations and the desires of his heart are literally Christ's desires. And when you think of it this way, and you put this in, a, in, in proper perspective in our own hearts and lives, Paul is loving like Christ loved. Imagine having the capacity to love each other the way Christ loved you and died for you. This is the emphasis we have here. Now, one major result of this kind of love is found in John thirteen thirty five. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You know, we often talk about going out and witnessing and spreading Christ, and of course, that's all very, very important. But do you realize that a compassionate, loving, devoted church is as much of a witness in the community as even speaking the words? Because people see something different. There is something completely different here. Paul demonstrated a compassionate love for these people because it was Christ flowing through him. And as these people reciprocated and loved each other and took care of each other and built this bond, it was a massive outreach that drew thousands of people to Christ because everybody wanted what they had and what they exhibited. So all of this then leads to spiritual fruit. If you look in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, 
so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. One of the works that God is performing until he comes, as verse 6 tells us, is that we would be fruitful Christians. He has not saved us merely to guarantee our place in eternity when our life is over, but that the character of Jesus Christ might be reproduced in us here on earth. Imagine that. The character of Jesus Christ being reproduced in you. That's a very sobering thought. And remember how all this is fitting together. There's a, there is a life set for you. I want to draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 2. We, we looked at this last week. But Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 12. For we are his workmanship. That means we are recreated in his spirit. We have new hearts fashioned with the glory of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, remember how we talked about this. You and I have the privilege to walk in and with the Lord. We have the utter joy of walking in the Spirit of the Lord. Now, just pause for a minute and consider this this important fact. Back when God created the Garden of Eden and he created Adam and Eve, there was no sin. And because God created man in his image, he gave them all things to enjoy in the garden. All the animals, the foliage, the trees, the skies, everything was at their enjoyment, except for one tree. He said, of that, do not eat or you'll surely die. Now we have two people perfectly content, obeying God, putting God first, loving him, and then Satan comes along and he plants some doubt. And how does he plant doubt? He says, look, you're not going to surely die. God said that, but come on. You think he's going to kill you? He, He loves you. He created you. And what he started to do was to take Adam and Eve's emphasis off God and God's ways and onto themselves. And so as they thought about this, they began to be intrigued. Huh. I could taste this. I could enjoy this. I could have that fruit. I wonder if my way is better. And they took... And you know the story. The very same battle, the identical battle, is what you and I go through every day today. I know God said, do it this way. I know God said, allow his spirit to live through me. I know God said he has this life prepared for me that was before time. 
And it's an amazing life. It's a life that's going to guide me through the minefields of this life. It's the life that's going to bring me through, that His Spirit will lead, that His Spirit will guide, that He'll get me through trials, that He'll get me through the glorious life. He promises all this, but my way seems pretty good too. I, I like what I'm doing. And I, and I know old Larry over here, man, when he trusted God, the bottom fell out. All kinds of trials. I don't want trials. That could happen to me. No, I'm going to... I know what God says, but, oh, man, I want this kind of life. And we miss it. And we struggle through day after day, get, trying to get through... Trials come, we don't know how to deal with them. Then we run to God. And so God has made this incredible declaration. I have a perfect life for you. You're going to have tribulation. You're going to have trials. You're going to have difficulty, but I will get you through. Trust me. And then he guarantees that in writing in the word of God. So my question is, how you doing? Who is in control of your life? You know, motivational speakers are great. Many of their principles come straight from the Bible. In fact, one I always enjoy, and I'm sure many of you still do today, was Zig Ziglar. Zig was a Christian. In fact, I sat in his Sunday school class years ago in uh, First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, and it was like a motivational session. A <laughs> uh, small class of about 650. Uh, but you know Zig Ziglar, he was great. But the problem is, the problem is, is that so many motivational speakers, they take these principles and they try to apply them to lives apart from Christ. Those principles are designed to work in a life that's being led by the Spirit, not by yourself. And so we try to charge ourselves up. We try to get positive. We try to have this great life, and it's all in the flesh. He says, trust me. Let me live these principles through you. This is the message of Philippians 1, 9 through 11. In praying for the Christians at Philippi, Paul asks for three things. He prays that their love might, be, might abound in all knowledge and discernment. He prays that their love might abound in knowledge and discernment. He prays that their lives might be lived free of hypocrisy. And he prays looking forward to the natural results of the first two requests, that they might be filled with the fruit of righteousness, verse 11. So notice this overflowing love that we have here. The first thing that Paul says the Christian needs is abounding love. Verse 9 says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Do you get the feeling of what Paul is saying here? I want you to have and experience overflowing love. The Christian must be filled with Christ's love. This can only be achieved by surrendering to the Spirit. This must be a love according to knowledge. The word here is a special Greek word, epigenosis. 
and it refers to an advanced spiritual knowledge. In the New Testament, the word is only applied to spiritual things, to the knowledge of God and to the doctrinal knowledge of the Scriptures. It is a knowledge that comes to the Christian by a study, a careful study of the Word of God. Diligently studying the Word leads to abounding love. And then the love that is behind good works must also be discerning. This word has a reference to the understanding given by the Holy Spirit. Just as the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, so the Holy Spirit enables us to discern how we should operate. So there is not a single tool that's necessary for a Spirit-filled life that the Spirit doesn't give and cultivate and encourage in. And then also, the love with which the Christian should be filled must be a discriminating love. Paul says that we are to discern what is best, verse 9. The word translated discern is the classical Greek re- uh, refers to testing something or someone to understand. It's the same word that applies in the testing of counterfeit money. Uh, years ago, in, in the old days, the way they would, would uh, test for, for uh, counterfeit money is that they would handle nothing but real money. That's all they would handle all day long, real money, real money. It's all they would touch it, feel it, work it around, fives, tens, twenties, fifties, whatever. That's all they would handle. And then when a, when a counterfeit slipped in, it was instantly recognized. And this is the same thing Paul is talking about here, that you and I are to be so much in the Scriptures, so much rooted and grounded in the faith and the love, that when something false comes along, it's instantly recognized. The discerning of the Spirit is clear and real. And then it is to be without offense, blameless. Verse 10 said, So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The fruit of life must be without obstructions. The word Paul uses means oven-tested. It does not mean that we are to be perfect because none of us is perfect. But it does mean that our lives must be opened before God to be made clear and that all the flaws be recognized and dealt with. I think one of the greatest illustrations of this is in Paul's time in the making of pottery. You know, most pottery was very thick and heavy, and it was easy to make. And that's the kind of pottery that the archaeologists find in digs today around a lot of these ancient areas. But there was also a very fine pottery that was extremely thin. It was almost an opaque color to it. And it was very, very expensive. The downside of it is that it broke very easily, even before and after firing. And so what needed to be done when it broke, they needed to be thrown away and started over. But some unscrupulous dealers would use a waxy substance, a a thickening substance, and they would fill the cracks, and it would blend right in with the look of the pottery. And if you were just looking at the pottery, you couldn't see the cracks. But if you took the pottery and held it up to the sunlight, you could see the light coming through the cracks. And so reputable dealers would put a sign out front of their store saying, Sina Sarah, which meant without wax. And this is literally what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that the flaws in this life, the life of believers, must not be covered over with wax. 
they must be clear in our lives before God. In this life, we're always going to have flaws, but we must not disguise them artificially. We must be sincere. God's love will not flow through insincerity. Fortunately, God's love will flow through an honest Christian, no matter how flawed they are. 2 Corinthians 4.7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. One day we will be without cracks, without flaws, as God makes us perfect. But for now, He is the one who fills the cracks. And then notice that this will lead to righteous fruit. We must be fruitful Christians, as verse 11 says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Where does righteous fruit come from? Jesus Christ. The fruit that you bear, if it's proper fruit, is Christ producing it through you. In John chapter 15, if, if you'll turn there, we are not only called to bear fruit, but we are called to be fruit. And in John 15, verses 4 and 5, when Jesus is talking about the vine and the branches, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. <clears throat> As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now that flies right in the face of a positive attitude if it's not grounded in the Holy Spirit. But everything hangs on that word abide. What does abide mean? The dictionary defines abide as accept or act in accordance with. Listen to some of these synonyms for the word abide. Comply, obey, observe, follow, conform to, adhere to, stick to, stand by, defer to. You get the idea? A vine abiding in Christ completely yields to the vine. The branch abiding in Christ completely yields to the branch where all the sap flows. So there can be no fruit in anyone's life apart from being fully dependent on Jesus Christ. If you aren't seeing fruit, perhaps it's time to get on your knees and ask the Lord what it is that's hindering the sap in your life. When this is done, something very remarkable begins to happen. And I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 1. And I'll take a few seconds for you to get there. I know it's going to be up on the screen, but I want you to make some notes or underline here because it's very critical. Because right at the very beginning of this incredible book of Psalms, the psalmist lays out something so basic, so clear, so righteous, that if you get this truth, you'll begin to understand what the real life is all about. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. 
Blessed is the man. Now, let me stop there for a second. What does it mean to be blessed? Literally, and in the Hebrew here, it means to have God bestow many blessings upon you. God to bestow great things upon you. So, right out of the gate, the very first word in the book of Psalms, to have abundant blessings upon you. Do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of the scornful. Now, notice what's happened here. I love this progression. Here you are walking in your life. Maybe you're trusting God. Maybe you're trying to live the life according to Him, and you're walking along, and suddenly you get sidetracked. Now, when it says the counsel of the wicked, this doesn't necessarily mean evil people. It's people that draw you away from God's direction in your life. So you're walking along, you get a little sidetrack, and you go from walking to standing. Stand in the way of sinners. So now you've been distracting, you've been walking along, and now you kind of slow down and take a few minutes, and you stand to take it all in. And as a result, you are now sitting in the seat of the scornful. You have come to a screeching halt. The progression is so clear. Walking, standing, sitting. Walking with the Lord, distracted over here, and now sitting. Just like Adam and Eve. And just like you and I today. But, here's the key. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law does he meditate day and night. In other words, there is such an overwhelming importance on being in the Word of God. Because there are the tools for the life God wants for you. Blessed is that man who's in the Word of God. And now here's where it just promises the world. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. So if you know anything about trees, usually the canopy you see up in the air, the roots are the same size. And strong trees' roots go very deep, and they get down into the underwater uh, and the streams and the lower beds, and they get nourishment and moisture that they need. And as a result, they continue to yield fruit in its season, and it, its leaf doesn't wither. So when the storms and the drought comes, that all the things that could kill a tree, its leaves don't even wither because it's planted deep into the Word. In all that he does, he prospers. You know what that tells me? That when you're in this Word, anchored into it, you are guaranteed prosperity. Now, let me be quick to say, we're not talking money here, okay? True prosperity is Christ in you, the hope of glory. True prosperity is when your life is free to allow the Spirit to lead you. True prosperity is when Jesus Christ produces fruit from within you. True prosperity is that you and Christ are one, that you have His mind, And when all the storms come, you can stand strong and not be moved because you are in Christ Jesus. And that 
is the life that prospers. So when you're hanging up, or when you're hung up on the life you want, are you denying God's right to lead you to the life he wants? His glory? The fascinating thing is that the gardener will prune. John 15, 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it might bear more fruit. God so loves you and I that he will take those shears and he'll lop off those things that are hindering you from producing godly fruit. And sometimes it hurts, especially when you get real attached to whatever it is. But listen, that is God's amazing love. He said, look, I've got this life for you, this life of works that was before ordained that you should walk in it. I have it for you. It's planned for you. When you accepted me, I'm rolling out this life. Trust me. Trust me. You can buy into this world and get all it has to offer. Or you can surrender to Christ and get all he offers. And that is true prosperity. God so loves you that he wants you to enjoy the amazing life of fruit bearing. And he will prune what doesn't help the achieving of that end so he can carry to completion until the day of Christ Jesus the life he set for you. So now you have the tools for success. You got the keys. Will you use them? Let's pray. Father, we're so amazed at how simple your word is. We're so amazed at how you love us and lay it all out before us, but we're not so amazed at how easy it is for us to yield to our own mind, our own desires, our own wants. And Lord, I just pray that you would break through that thick, thick skulls of ours and to show us that if you are a God of love who gave your life to secure our eternity, surely you're a God of love who will care for us every day of our lives. Help us to get our eyes off what we think success is and plant them squarely on the real success giver. And may we all leave here this morning clearly understanding that the life has been laid out before us. May we jump on it with every fiber of our body and our mind and our soul and our heart and allow you to be the supreme one in our lives. And we'll give you the praise in Christ Jesus. Amen.